Happy Easter, New Life Church. Jesus is risen. I'll be honest, I did wish someone a Merry Christmas by accident this morning. It just came out of my mouth. Caught me by surprise. I don't know why that happened. But it's good to have you here this morning on this special day. You know, it was on this day, a Sunday, 2,000 years ago, very early in the morning, these three ladies set out to the tomb of Jesus to finish the work that they didn't, uh, couldn't finish on Friday. You see, Jesus, he had been crucified and he died on Friday. He died late in the afternoon on Friday. And, you know, Saturday was Sabbath, Sabbath for the Jews, right? The day in which they were to rest. They were to do no work and their day started and ended a little bit differently than ours. It wasn't midnight that a new day began. It was, it was sundown. When the sun went down, that was the end of one day and the beginning of, of the next. And so it was at sundown Friday evening that the Sabbath would begin. And so uh, time was short. As was just read, uh, Joseph gathered Jesus' body. They tried to get him in that tomb just to beat out the clock. They didn't have time to, you know, to treat the body. And so they had to wait it out on the Sabbath, on Saturday until early Sunday morning. These three women set out to the tomb to finish the job, taking spices to treat the body of Jesus. They were so overcome with just emotion, grief, that um, they hadn't even thought how they were going to move that stone. It didn't dawn on them until they were like halfway there. Oh yeah, like how are we going to roll away that big stone? To their surprise, when they got there, the stone was already moved, and they went in. They found the tomb empty. There was a young man there. Now the other Gospels will make clear that that was an angel of the Lord who delivered the good news to them that Jesus has risen. He's not there anymore, and he has gone on ahead, and you can go into the region of Galilee to meet the risen Lord. Good news. And the ladies responded in verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Now that is a crummy way to end the story. And I don't know why, why Mark did that. In fact, I was kind of, like, that's not really an ending. I, I was having a bit of a pity party this week for a few reasons, because my kids were at home. And I love my kids, but in doses. <laughs> She's just glaring at me. <laughs> I love them. You know, I love them. So they're at home. You know, we're snowed in. I got to write an Easter sermon while they're making a joyful noise to the Lord, <laughs> loudly sharing their love for one another. And, you know, and I'm in a corner of the room and, and I'm, okay, Easter Sunday, this is a big Sunday, and I'm thinking, why did I pick the gospel of Mark to preach through? This is the worst resurrection story of them all. I mean, the other three, you know, Matthew, John, Luke, like, they did it right. Like, and if, if you've read them, you know, like, they actually have a proper ending that's satisfactory, that ties up the loose ends, you know? Jesus rises from the dead. He goes on ahead. The women and the disciples, they meet him. They see him. They eat with him. They believe in him. Jesus gives them the great commission, the charge he entrusts his ministry to them before he ascends into heaven. The end. That's the way it's supposed to end. And I'm stuck with this story going, how do I preach about the resurrection in the gospel of Mark? Mark, thank you very much. And so I was struggling. I'm not going to lie. I was struggling a little bit this week 
to, to look at the story that seemingly does not have a proper ending. It ends with these women finding an empty tomb and fleeing in terror and telling nobody. What? And I think other people kind of went, what, to that? I mean, throughout history, because maybe you noticed when the scripture's up on the screen, it ended with a little statement in brackets saying, hey, the other verses that you might find at the end of your gospel of Mark, like if you opened it up, you might have found, well, that's not the end, verses 8, there's 9 through 20. But maybe in your Bible, it's in parentheses, or like mine, it's in italics, and there's a footnote that says, yeah, those last verses that tie up all the loose ends, with the satisfactory ending, that wasn't in any of the original manuscripts of Mark. And there's complete consensus that those were a later addition by someone who thought that's no way to end the story. And if you look at it, it's very clear. They're just copy-pasting what Matthew and, Mar- and Luke and John had to say and adding it to fill in the awkward gaps. In fact, there's been a couple endings added. There's that big long one. My Bible has a footnote. There was another shorter ending that someone added. After the women flee in terror and tell no one, then it says, then they quickly reported all of these instructions. Because we can't end with like the women afraid and not telling. We've got to rectify that situation. Someone added the ending. Then they quickly reported all of these instructions to those around Peter. And after this, Jesus himself also sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Amen. Doesn't that sound better? And yet it's really clear that Mark ended the way he ended. The women finding this tomb, being afraid, and telling no one. And so that that, that just kind of really begs the question, why, Mark? What are you trying to say? Kind of wrestled with that this week. Was he trying to leave them on a bit of a cliffhanger? Like, okay, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he not rise from the dead? I guess you won't know. He's not trying to leave them with a cliffhanger, the resurrection of Jesus uncertain. I mean, everyone he was writing to these Christians, I mean, they were Christians because they had believed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Like that's, how, that's really how you became a Christian. Paul would say in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You had to believe in that. In fact, that's why the church, even at that time, they worshipped on Sundays. Most of them would have come from a Jewish background or they worshipped on Saturday, the Sabbath, but they picked a new day to gather to worship this Jesus. They could have picked Friday, the day of the cross, but they didn't. They picked Sunday, the day of the resurrection, because that's how important that was. Mark's not trying to leave them with some sort of open-ended question about whether it happened or not. And you know what? He's not trying to pull the wool over eyes. We all know that these ladies told what they had seen, right? Like, how else would Mark had known? Unless they eventually told. So we know they did tell. But he didn't add that part. It's just the, they fled and were afraid and didn't speak to anyone. What's Mark doing? I was thinking, a friend of mine in in, uh, the church I pastored in Ontario, real outdoorsy guy. Man's man, type of man I could only wish to be. Anyway, he, he was selected to be a competitor on Man Tracker. You ever seen that TV show where they put two guys in the wilderness and they got to get from point A to point B and they got to cross this harsh terrain and they're being tracked by a professional tracker on horseback? 
He's trying to catch them before they get there. And so he was one of these guys. And, and so I was so eager to watch the episode of Man Tracker that he was on, right? And it shows him going through the bush, you know, going like over rocky ledges. And he almost drowned once. He fell into this raging river and he had a backpack on. And I'm like, oh my goodness, he's going to drown. And then I realized, hold on here. Why am I seeing this? There's like a camera in his face the whole time. He's not going to drown. Like, the whole thing is like, he's lost. Is he going to find his way out? There's a whole camera crew around the guy filming his every move. Of course he's not lost. Of course he's going to make it out. But it's, it's trying to kind of build this tension and bring you into the story. Like, what would you do if you were in that position? I think what Mark is doing with this really odd ending, this kind of ending that really leaves things unsaid, is he's kind of creating this tension. He's, I believe he's just really wanting us to draw, draw us into the story, and he wants us to consider, how would I respond in this situation? You know, as much as it's, it's great to have the other Gospels tell the whole story, and we could do that, tie up all the loose ends, you know, he rose from the dead, they met him, they believed, he gave the commission, he ascended into heaven, we sing one final song, we go have lunch. We know this. But Mark's not going to let us do that. He's not going to let us rush through this. He's going to cause us to stop and go, what does this mean? This empty tomb, what does this mean? How will I react to this news. So in, in leaving things hanging, I think Mark is kind of goading us to react. He's forcing us to grapple with this most strange event and what it might mean. He kind of forces us to enter the story. Maybe we need to do that again. Think about this in a fresh way. So I want to just take some time to look at the reaction of these three women and, and what the reaction to the resurrection might tell us about what it means. It's interesting, this angel that delivered this good news to them gave them two commands. First, don't be afraid. Second, go and tell the other disciples. Two commands. And then in the very next verse, the last statement in the gospel, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone, and they were afraid. You see what he's doing? You got two things to do. Don't be afraid. Go tell the others. What did they do? They were afraid and they didn't go tell the others. Mark is highlighting, like he's finishing the whole story by highlighting the disciples' failure and their disobedience. Why? I mean, the irony here is that throughout the Gospel of Mark, at, at least a few times, People in the story will encounter the miraculous power of Jesus and they're amazed. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, shh, don't tell anyone. My time hasn't come. Keep this to yourself. And what do they do? They go blab it. They tell everyone. And now at the end of the story, now's the time to tell. Go and tell. And what do they do? Shh, they keep it to themselves. And really, it's the same thing. You see this pattern right throughout the Gospel of Mark. The, the, the disciples of Jesus, they're always failing. And they're always disobeying. 
right through. In fact, a couple chapters later in, in Mark chapter 14, uh, when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in Mark 14 verse 50, it says, then everyone, that is like all his disciples who are with him, then everyone deserted Jesus and fled. And then there's this little comment that is found in only the Gospel of Mark. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So just close your eyes and picture that. No, don't. Right? I don't know if I should be painting this picture. You're just seeing a butt. A bare butt running into the night. Okay? Leaving his garment behind, fleeing in fear. Now, this is a little... Why is Mark giving this to us? Well, actually... A lot of, most people think this is Mark himself. Mark was a young man at this time. He was a companion of Peter, you know, the, the main disciple of Jesus. And um, normally when you would have a little detail like that but not name the person, it's yourself. That's kind of what they'd be getting at. And so this is probably Mark himself. What he's doing is he's highlighting this moment, this critical moment in this story in Jesus' life where he's arrested. He's going to the cross. Everybody abandons him. They flee in fear. And now... At the end of the story, Jesus rises from the dead at this really critical moment. What happens? The exact same thing. They come into the tomb and his body is gone. There's just a garment. And they flee in fear. It's the exact same thing happens again. Garden of Gethsemane, the resurrection. I, I, think, I think what Paul or what Mark is getting at here is he's trying to, he's trying to make really clear that the gospel, the work of Jesus through the cross and the resurrection, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish and will one day fully realize, fully establish, is 100% God's doing. It is completely the power of God, 100%. It's nothing that we can add to or take anything away from. It doesn't depend on the way that we re react to it or respond to it or not. It just is what it is. It is the work of God from beginning to end. And it doesn't matter what you think of it or how you respond to it with fear or courage, with faith or disobedience. It is what it is. It is the work of God that doesn't depend on His disciples or anybody else. You know, uh, here at Christmas time, a few... Um, Months ago, we watched The Santa Claus. You watch that with Tim the Toolman Taylor? I can't remember if it was one, two, three, four. Anyway, there's a problem in the movie, right? Santa has to deliver all these presents to kids around the world, but the, the, the sleigh's running out of power, right? And, and, and the reindeer don't have the magic to complete this mission. And, and we find out what the problem is. There's a clausometer, it's called, on the sleigh. And, and it shows that the sleigh is running low on power. And what does it need? It needs Christmas spirit. That's what powers Santa and the sleigh. It's Christmas spirit. And the world is lacking Christmas spirit. Not enough people are believing in Santa Claus anymore. That's the problem. And so the whole movie is, is, is to go and to like, Rekindle Christmas spirit to power the sleigh so that Santa can fulfill his mission. Good news, it happened. It worked. What Mark is saying is the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what God is doing in the world is nothing like that. It doesn't depend on any, anything or anyone outside of God himself. What he is doing. 
God is victorious over sin and death, not because of his disciples, not because of how they respond or how much faith they have or what they do, but in spite of us. He is victorious, not because of us, but in spite of us. He has been that way and he will continue to be that way. It was his wisdom that brought this all about to begin with. Like a few times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus explained the plan. Guys, I got to go to the cross and I'm going to rise again. And they just didn't get it in their thick heads. A few times he told them. And here they are and they still don't get it. They don't have the wisdom. I mean, Peter actually rebuked Jesus saying, you're not going to the cross. I'm never going to let you die. This will never happen. I mean, he just tried to stop it from happening. But you can't stop God from doing what God will do. This was God's mission. And I think what Mark is saying is, we may seem to fail over and over again, but God always succeeds. And that's good news. I mean, I'm I'm, kind of glad that he ended with the failure of the disciples instead of, they did a really good job, and that's why we're here today. But it's like, they did a bad job, and we're still here today. God is still victorious. God is still at work. God is bringing all of human history to his purposed end. And it doesn't matter how you respond to it. Because it's 100% the doing of God. We are weak, but our weakness does not diminish the strength of God. We can't make it any more real. It is what it is. And that's good news, I think. I'm comforted by that because... You know, I'm going to be afraid sometimes. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm afraid sometimes. And I don't know about you, but I fail sometimes. And, and I'm just so glad to know that in spite of my fear and in spite of my failure, it doesn't diminish what God has done and what God will do. This is completely, from beginning to end, the work of God. And I think maybe that's what the angel is getting at when he says in verse 7, that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. You're supposed to go meet him. He's going ahead of you. Now, now that word there doesn't mean, it's not the word that would be like your, your uh, GPS system in your car, like turn, three, three destination, three kilometers ahead. Like it, it's, not a, it's not a spatial term. Like you're here, he's there. It, it's a term of, um, it, was, it was a word of like a commander leading his army forward. Right? He has gone ahead of you. He is at the head leading his troops fall in line with him. I I think what Mark is saying is don't think that God follows you. He calls you to follow him. You know, and we we can live in in a bit of a self-centered world, aren't we? Where it's like a lot of the way we can think about God and act as if God's there for me, he loves me, and he does, right? But we can kind of think like God is there to do my bidding, and there's this little story that came to mind. Uh, throw the words up on the screen there. Found in the book of Joshua, right? In the Old Testament where Joshua, who's the leader of the nation of Israel, they're moving into the promised land. Joshua is scouting the land. This is when Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and he asked, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing on is holy. And Joshua did so. 
And what we're supposed to see there is he had to take off his sandals because this is none other than God made manifest to Joshua. He has come face to face with God. I don't know, maybe this is actually like kind of Jesus. And, and, and Joshua comes up to him and says, are you on my team, our team, or are you on their team? And you might expect God, the God of Israel, to be like, well, I'm on your team, of course. Oh, what a relief, right? He just says, neither. I'm on neither team. That's not how it works. The question is, are you on my team? Are you on my team? Mark is saying, you know, God doesn't follow us to do our bidding. We are called to follow Him, to get on board with what He is doing. You can't add anything to what God has done and you can't take away anything from it. All we can do is receive it. All we we can do is receive it by faith. Isn't isn't that what John said in John 1, right? To all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, God gave the right to become his children. So that's what I see in their fear. Saying like, this isn't up to you. It doesn't really matter how you respond. God is going to do what God is going to do. Get on board. Your, fail, your failures, your disobedience can't stop him. Praise God. And I think Mark wants us to kind of imagine ourselves in, in this group with these women. So, like, imagine yourself. Put yourself there, right? He's dead. It's game over. You're full of grief and sorrow. You're going to dress his body with spices. You saw him die, you saw him buried, and now you come to this empty tomb. And you hear this news. He's not here, he's risen. What would you do? What would you do? You think you'd like, be like, that's amazing! Are you serious? He's alive? High fives all around! You're like high fiving the angel and high fiving all the ladies. This is such good news. I'm going to go tell everybody. Such good news. That's the point in the sermon where I yelled to try to wake some of you up. That's that tactic, right? Well, I mean, would we be like, we'd be like holding the parties? No, no, no. I, I think we would be doing exactly what they did. Oh, my goodness. What does this mean? I, I, don't, I, don't, I think we would have been afraid and quiet too. Why? Because fear comes when you experience something so unusual, so significant, so incredible, that it causes you to sense that life will, will fundamentally change. It will never be the same again. You ever had those moments in your life where something so big happened, and it can be a great thing or it can be a terrible thing, but you realize in that moment that it is so consequential that life is going to be different from now on forward and you're not really sure how. You don't know what it's all going to mean for you. Maybe you can think of moments like that. Like I I remember 9-11, September 11th, 2001. Remember? Those planes hit those towers. And I was talking with Daniel about that and he didn't know what I was talking about. Well, he, he hadn't heard about it, but I'm like, how old are you? He's like, three. That's when I felt old. You were three? I was 20. I remember I was at Providence College 
I got up out of bed a little late to get to my Greek class. I got there. Oh, it's kind of weird. I peer through the window. Everyone's head is bowed. It's quiet. That's not normal. I come in. I discover, oh, something really terrible's happened. They had it on the big screen there in, in the college amphitheater. They canceled all the classes. And it was just a room full of people sitting in stunned silence. Nobody knew what to think of this. Everybody was afraid. Why? Because we all sensed that something so momentous had happened that it was going to change life. And we weren't sure how. So that can happen with terrible things. That can happen with great things. I remember the day I proposed to my wife. May 3rd, 2003, in Grasmere, just outside this beautiful little town in northern England called Grasmere. I had the ring in my pocket, had it all planned out. You know, I was going to go along this little river, the River Rothay. We got out of town, we're on this river. This is the spot. This is the spot. Do it, Rusty. Do it. You want to do it. Just do it. You want to be with her. You want to spend your life with her. Just, just bend your knee. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. My knee wouldn't bend. So we just kept walking. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus. I'm so afraid, Jesus. I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. Help me to bend my knee. She's probably like, what is this guy doing? We're just wandering. Just wandering. Finally, we come back to that spot, and I just worked up the courage to bend my knee, and I said something. And I was so scared. And I felt that same way when I stood before her in a tuxedo on December 27, 2003, when we got married. I'm like, I wanted to do it. That's why I was there. It was good. And yet, I was still afraid. Why? Because I knew that in that moment, something so big was happening that it was going to change my life forever. Things could never be the same again. And you know what? Even if, even if the familiar isn't great, it, at least we know it. What is life going to... I think that's what's happening in these moments. Yeah, that's why they're not high-fiving one another, putting it on social media, Jesus is alive, because they're processing this. They're coming to the realization that this is such a big deal, if this is true, that my life is going to change. God is doing so, something so fundamentally big that history is changing in this moment. What does it mean? And that's how Mark leaves it there because he wants us to consider that. What does it mean? Now he's going to give them a bit of a clue. He's going to give us a bit of a clue. Because the angel said to them in that empty tomb, he said, go and tell the disciples and say to them that he, Jesus, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Now, it's kind of interesting, um, and this is very intentional, but what Mark is doing is, is he's using the same words he used at the very beginning of his gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2, in speaking of John the Baptist, who is to come to make a way for Jesus... Mark records these words, this prophecy. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's how he begins. Now, how does he end? He will go ahead of you to prepare your way. Jesus has gone ahead of you to prepare your way. To prepare your way into what? To prepare your way into life eternal. To give you unending 
unending life. On the cross and in the, and, and, and in the resurrection, Jesus bore your sin, overcame the power of sin, the power of death, and made a way for us to have life with God forever. And they would come to understand that. They would come to understand that. They would come to understand that, you know, the the irony is that their fear at at the tomb, um, at the resurrection, was... It was kind of ironic because the resurrection means we don't need to fear. It's the fact that the resurrection is real, which means we do not need to fear about the future. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, the children, that's us, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There are people who live their lives in slavery, in bondage to fear. Fear of disease, because disease brings death. Fear of dying, because then what happens after that? I don't know. And maybe you know that fear. And if you don't, you certainly know someone who is gripped with that fear. Jesus came and he died and he rose from the dead, overcoming the power of death so that we could be freed from the fear of death, fear of the future. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives births in our life, living hope. Living hope, which means it's a hope, not in something that that may or may not happen. It's a hope that, that is a guarantee. You have an inheritance in Jesus that is kept safe in heaven for you. Nobody can touch it. You can't lose it. No one can steal it for you, from you. You have this life that belongs to you through Jesus, this great inheritance, this hope, that is living because nothing can extinguish this hope that is now yours because Jesus rose from the dead. There is now nothing to fear. What a difference a day makes for these ladies, right? They saw Jesus die. He was buried. It was all over. Despair, fear, and gloom on Saturday. But what a difference a day makes. Sunday changed everything. The resurrection changed everything. And it's still changing everything in our lives for those who will receive it. Carl Henry, a theologian, he, he, he said, Jesus planted the only durable rumor of hope amid the widespread despair of a hopeless world. We live in a hopeless world. 
I, I just watch the news, I read the newspaper, I'm a bit of a newsie, and it gets me down. Because we live in a hopeless world. It used to be where we thought, you know, mankind, we're, we're like getting smarter, we're evolving, you know, we're getting more peaceful, we're going to build this utopian world. No one thinks that way anymore. It used to be like, I watched the Jetsons. Daniel, you remember the Jetsons? Of course, he's like, Jetsons? Is that a play for the Winnipeg Jets? Is that like the goalie back? I haven't seen the Jetsons. What were the Jetsons? It was like this utopian world, this place we were inevitably going to get to where we had solved all of our problems. Life was going to be good, right? Robots doing all your work. Nobody watches the Jetsons anymore. The movies, they're not utopian. It's all dystopian, right? It's all dystopian stuff. Why? Because we have this sense that our world is despairing. We tried to muster whatever hope that could come within us and we couldn't find it. And we won't find it because hope can only be found in Jesus Christ and what God has done through Him and which God does in our lives through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only durable rumor of hope. And so if there's kind of one big idea that you can take away from here this morning, maybe it's these words, that Jesus' resurrection transforms a hopeless end into an endless hope. That's what his resurrection means. He transforms a hopeless end into an endless hope so that we can know how our story ends. We can know how our story ends. We don't know how we're all going to get there. But we can know how our story ends, and it ends happily ever after through Jesus Christ. You know, I've had to do Endless hope. It sounds good. I've had to do too many funerals recently. And they're hard. Funerals are always hard. Some are harder than others, you know. I just, I just hugged a family this morning who came in, right, that lost their boy. A number of weeks ago, their two-year-old boy. There are situations that, that maybe may appear hopeless. You know, those times that there are there is pain. But what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means is that pain doesn't need to be despair. We can have pain and we can grieve, but we don't need to despair. For there is hope. There is this enduring hope that nothing can extinguish. This hope that is ours through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this is what Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and talking about this, verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. Where, Where can we find hope? in the midst of all the hardship and the griefs of life, for we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him and we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Those words are encouraging. We can be with the Lord forever. Unending life. 
we have this inextinguishable hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, in those words we read a few minutes ago from 1 Peter chapter 3, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, that is, in the truth of the resurrection and this hope you have. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What's the little while he's talking about? Like a day? Like you might have like these one-day sort of trials. You might have a bad day here and there. What's the little while? A day? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it a year? He's talking about life. He's saying in the scope of this reality, all of our trials are a little while. We may have to endure for a little while, but there is this hope in which we can greatly rejoice, the hope of the resurrection, that there is life with God forever through His Son. And that makes all the difference. It's a hope that drives out fear. It turns Saturday into Sunday. You know, some days feel like Saturdays. We all have Saturdays. They feel like Saturdays. But, but if Jesus rose from the dead, there is no such thing as a Saturday. More. Every day is Sunday. Sunday never ended. Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus is still risen. And so the, the, the women asked the question, who will roll the stone away? God has decisively answered that question. He has rolled the stone away from Jesus' grave, and He will roll the sto stone away from our graves as well. If we receive His Son, this is the plan of God for our salvation. And this is in what we rejoice today. So maybe Mark was, maybe Mark was on to something. I don't know. I kind of came to appreciate his ending as much as I didn't really like it at the beginning. Because it makes you think. It makes you ponder. It doesn't answer all the questions for you. You have to kind of fill in the gap. You have to fill in the blanks and you have to, you have to add your own answer. You have to provide the ending. So you have a little work to do, right? You have to grapple with this resurrection of Jesus. What does it mean for you? And so this is the question that I think each of us, we need to ponder on, on this day. The question, how will you respond? That's what Mark wants us to consider. If this is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, what does that mean for me? If it's true, and there's lots of reasons why we believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that that's true. I'm not going to get into them because my, my time's done. You got Easter hams. Go get a book, The Case for Christ, written by Lee Strobel, an atheist investigative journalist for one of the most prolific newspapers in the United States. His wife becomes a Christian. He thinks, I can't believe my wife would be so foolish to believe something like that. He was going to debunk it. He's an investigative journalist. He'll figure it out. He'll show her her faith is nothing. Well, he writes a book about how he came to faith in Jesus Christ because he became convinced because of the preponderance of evidence that this actually happened in history. The God who created us to live has redeemed us through His Son. So what does that mean for you in your life? How will you respond? Will you follow Jesus?
Will you be afraid? Will you, will you, be, will you be afraid to follow him because of what, where he might lead you? Where you might go? Will you allow your fear and your failures to define you? Or will you get back up, dust yourself off, and keep following Jesus? Will you live in this hope? Will you cling to this hope? Will you rejoice in this hope regardless of the circumstances you face and the griefs that you bear? That's a question that only you can answer. How will you respond? The choice is yours. The choice is yours. Let's pray. God, on this day, almost 2,000 years ago, you changed the course of human history. You changed the trajectory of history. You've changed the trajectory of our lives. God, we received the good news again this morning that you sent your son. He died on that cross to bear our sin. He rose from the dead to overcome death and to make a way for us to live with you forever. A way for us to have hope in all circumstances. And we thank you for your love. It's your love that caused you to do this for us. As we've already said, we're failures. We're afraid. We can't do it. We're not wise enough. We're not strong enough. But I thank you, God, that your wisdom is perfect and your love is perfect, and your power is perfect, and you've done everything that was necessary to win for us life. Lord, I just pray that as we go from here into this day and back into our lives, and as we kind of ponder this great news of the resurrection of your son Jesus, Lord, would, would it just cause, um, cause hope to well up in us? cause joy to well up in the areas of our life where we lack it, cause love to well up in us in the areas of our life where we lack it. Lord, the, give us the courage that we need to follow after you and after your, your son Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So God, we just thank you so much for all that you have done and the life that you freely give us that we can enjoy today and each day. It's in your son's name we pray. And together we say, amen.